Welcome to the Do What You Can Do edition of Something Different This Way Comes. Today we're talking solar panels and heat pumps. And all that I learned is as I tried to get that ball rolling in our house this fall. Something different this way comes. Something, something different. Something different, something different this way comes something, something different, something different. After recording last week's podcast, I had a fight with my brother. It wasn't like a knockdown, drag him out fight. It was just a chat, kind of a got both kind of irritated and sharp sort of feeling emotional fight. Because I got on the call all excited about the things that energized me and, and had me feeling hopeful in my worries about climate change. And my brother is in his final year in northern BC of becoming an environmental engineer. So it took a bit for us to realize how we were rubbing each other the wrong way until finally he said, you know, I just feel like you don't get how bad it is. And he is in northern BC. And he is in environmental science. He was in forestry previously. So he's seen forests devastated. He's seen heat domes. He's seen, you know, invasive species devastate those forests. And then forest fires and then mudslides. Whole infrastructure being lost. And conversations about whether it's worth replacing. How we could possibly adapt that don't seem to get where they need to go. There's such inertia. There's such an unwillingness to talk openly about how much change is necessary and what we need to do to get us there safely and quickly. And he's got a point. Well, the problem is, if all you point me towards is how bad the odds are stacked against us, I start shutting down. I start freaking out. And I need to look at where we need to go as a vision and face that direction and look for all the ways that will help bridge whatever gaps there are between here and there. So we have differences. Another one would be that he is an engineer, and an engineer is hardwired to look for the weakest link, the one that would break the chain. And I'm an, a mom, and I know as a mom that incredible things can happen if you just do what you can do and have faith in people and meet them halfway. I also kept thinking after my conversation with my brother that I, I couldn't let go of, it riled me right up, was about the episode I did on, on capital and interest and how I tried to explain compound interest. Because compound interest is surprising to our human sensibilities. We would like something nice and linear when we are building momentum. But actually, the way it more often works is it doesn't look like much of anything is happening. The parallel I gave was the shampoo commercial where you tell two people who tell two people who tell two people. And if you really are to go around the world telling two people on a regular basis what's on your mind, what you're worried about, what you'd like to see happen, it might look like that's going nowhere. Until suddenly, everybody seems to be talking about it. And it's hard to see how the conversations you had led to the conversations everyone is having, but they did. And the line is not straight. It's a curveball. Life is full of curveballs and of tipping points and of saturation points where you just put that last grain of sugar or salt into the water and suddenly it crystallizes. That's what I'm envisioning when I keep throwing ideas out there and waking up and reaching for my hope and feeding it with all I got. So this episode's been a long time in coming. As soon as I started digging into climate change and what we can do, what struck me was alternative energy. I mean, there's no two ways about it. We need to stop using fossil fuels. The quicker we can transition out, the better. The more we can build up our capacity for other sources of energy, renewable, sustainable sources of energy like solar power and wind power, the less we're going to contribute to this problem that's already handicapping us. So it's urgent. The faster it happens, the better. The question is, what can I do? 
And the opportunity is, well, maybe what I couldn't afford last time I looked at it, I now can because solar's gotten cheaper. And I, I looked at other places where people started going solar and how it catches on in the neighborhood. And I thought, aha, I'll tell two people. This will be a way to uh, lead by example in my own neighborhood. And then my cousin this summer told me that, that she and her husband had decided to go solar and they found it so rewarding and so much easier and she couldn't wait to tell me about it. Now they live in Alberta and you know Alberta is a hot seat for fossil fuels so you'd think it would be way behind us. I mean Ontario was a leader in alternative energy investments 20 years ago. We, we set some great precedents internationally. It's not something I hear about lately but you just kind of assume you know we're ahead of the game. But in Alberta, in Calgary, where my cousin lives, there's a website that the municipality set up that allows you to put in your address, find out probably how much energy you could generate based on the tilt of your roof and how much sunlight you get. And then it'll give you a bunch of options of places that can put the solar in, give you an estimate how long it'll take, and hold your hand so you can get any rebates or funding that's out there to help make it happen. Which meant that the story my cousin told me was really heartening. And I determined that we would try to replicate that at our house. So the first discovery was that, of course, the city of Thunder Bay does not have a website up that actively reaches out to meet me halfway to help me get solar power on my roof. I did find a map that had been generated of the city of Thunder Bay just back in 2020. At the greater area, it showed all of the areas that had the, the greatest potential for wind and solar farms. And there were a lot of bright little pieces of yellow all over that map. I had no idea about that map. We'll put a link to it on the website, www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes. So that was heartening, but there certainly was nothing there that was helpful for me. But I was Googling and going all over looking for solar power installation options, contractors. And so ads would pop up and invite me and say, oh, we install solar all across Canada. Contact us now for a free quote. So I did that with one place who got back to me pretty quickly to say, yeah, we do most of Canada, but not Thunder Bay. And then another place, oh, yeah, we do most of Canada, but not Thunder Bay. That was disheartening. So then I reached out to a few friends that live outside of town, but they are all solar, like they have completely gone solar. I'm like, who did you work with? Who would you recommend? And they recommended some hardware providers. But it was really do-it-yourself systems. And Arno and I sat down and looked at them and thought, so much could go wrong. And when would we fit it in? This didn't feel right. We wanted something more like what my cousin out west had. So... Finally, one of those pop-up boxes led to somebody who actually does do it for you here in Thunder Bay. PowerTech Solar got back to me quickly. Kevin Bose was the guy who called me to answer all my questions, and he's been such a help as we try to wrap our heads around the costs, the benefits, the grants now available, and other key concerns. I had to ask him to chat on Mike. The more people that I can uh, teach about solar, the better. So this is a great spot for the both of us. Well, tell me first, though, because I was looking and looking for somebody here in Thunder Bay, and uh, you're the closest I've found. You guys are not local, but you are supporting putting up solar in Thunder Bay. But tell me about uh, your company and, and how you come here. Well, PowerTech started as an electric uh, electrical company nine years ago, and then we adapted solar six years ago when Manitoba Hydro first had their solar pilot program, which was very uh, popular here in Manitoba. And just as, as time has gone on, we've grown to uh, service all of Saskatchewan as well. Um, Northwestern Ontario was just a natural kind of way for or place to us to, to grow into, as a lot of people in Winnipeg have cottages and stuff like that in Kenora and everything like that. So we just gradually moved up there and then there was a little bit of demand in Thunder Bay. So um, yeah, we, we do a lot of solar in Thunder Bay now. You're not here weekly, though. You kind of group us together, I guess. Yeah, we'll try to group you together as much as possible and, uh, you know, go for a couple weeks at a time and, and do a few installs at a time, that kind of thing. So one of the things that got me excited, well, there's a few. Like, obviously, as a family, we're trying to lessen our carbon footprint and be part of, of, of the future, like be proactive. Mm -hmm. um, we did that first maybe 15 years ago 
when the microfit program was a big deal in Ontario. Sure. And the, if I remember correctly, I think that the bill it would have cost for us to put up a system then was, was over a hundred thousand dollars. It was daunting. Wow. Um, and then ever since then recently, I'm like, solar's gotten so much cheaper. Solar's gotten so much cheaper. So how much cheaper? Like what are the kinds of investments people are now making to, to start putting solar panels on their homes? Sure. Yeah. I mean, solar's definitely come down. I've been in this industry now for about six years. I've chased these rebate programs all over the country. I've sold solar in the United States. Um, Solar has come down in price over the last six years, no doubt about it. Now you say you looked at a quote 15 years ago for $100,000. Well, you could still spend $100,000 on solar today if you wanted to, right? It all depends on what size system you were looking at before. And if that was for a basic residential system, well, then yeah, it's come down a lot in prices right now, and there's some great grants and everything like that that are available. The MicroFit program was really popular back in the day. I spent a year in Ontario working with the MicroFit program as well. But now, with the grants and the rebates that are available, you could get you know a basic 5-kilowatt system, taxes in under $10,000 installed on your home, where... You know, before when you were looking at it 15 years ago, I don't think that was quite $100,000, but I bet you it was north of $30,000. So when we first connected with you, you just needed the address of the house Mm -hmm. and a few details. I pulled off our hydro bill and you got us this really detailed quote really quick, like in a day or two. It included installation and also some options like we could do. It didn't have to. So what have you found are the key things that people are weighing? as they as they decide where to start in setting up solar in their homes? Sure, great question. I mean, there's a lot of different factors that go into solar when you're looking at your particular home. Um, everyone's roof plane is going to be a little bit different. How many panels you could fit up there, what direction they're facing, your electricity consumption is very important. These are all key factors in determining how many panels go up and what's going to be the best benefit for you. Whether or not you're actually going to go solar or not. Well, solar is a long-term investment. Um, So I find that people who have just bought their forever home and they plan on being there for a long time, they'll get into solar as a hedge against inflation. One of those key decisions is one, saving money in the long term, right? Right. So like if I'm spending 10 or $15,000 on a, on a solar power system, like how long might it take on average to, to kind of pay off my capital investment. I'm paying less in electricity, but I put all this cash into those solar panels that first year. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, And it depends on which way you look at it as well, right? We know that the price of electricity is going to go up. And the way that solar works is when you're generating solar power, you're going to use as much solar power as you can on the property. So regardless of what the retail cost of electricity is, Anytime you could use the power that you're generating from the solar, that's going to be your best saving. That's that's your best bang for your buck. That doesn't show up on your power bill. It doesn't hit your meter. The utility company doesn't know about it. It's kind of the best, best case scenario, right? So if you could do a lot of that, and we factor in the price of power going up over the next few years, we're seeing payback periods in the best case of scenarios in that seven to eight year range, maybe nine to 10 years is a little bit more common. But under 10 years in terms of utility savings. And then one other factor to keep in mind now, there's not a lot of data in Canada, but I had mentioned to you, I, uh, I'd, I'd spent a little bit over a year selling in the United States. And in the United States, um, there's a lot of data for resale of homes with solar panels. And the national average is about a 4% increase in the value of your home. So this is one of those improvements that increases the value of your home the cost of electricity is going to go up faster than the solar panels are going to degrade. All solar panels kind of degrade over time. But we know 10 years from now, they're going to be 90% efficient compared to year one. But we know that the cost of power is probably going to increase more than a half a percent per year or 1% per year or whatever it may be, right? So in 10 years from now, the electricity these solar panels produce will be more valuable than in year one. So it's an appreciating asset that goes on your roof, increases the value of your home, and saves you money on your electricity bill all at the same time. 
And the timing's right also because of, you've mentioned this, these rebates and, and grants the feds are putting out there. There mm-hmm. might be some in other provinces, but in Ontario, we're just, we're just able to access federal money right now. Sure. Can you tell us a bit about what that entails and, and how much it might add up? Yeah, so the Federal Greener Homes Grant is all about reducing your electricity consumption. So you could go to the federal government's Greener Homes Initiative website and you could book an inspection and they'll come out to your house and, you know, they'll do everything. They'll do a blow tests on your windows and your doors to find out where you're leaking air and stuff like that. They want you to be as efficient as possible. So you can get money back for, you know, switching to a heat pump or replacing a couple windows, increasing the insulation in your attic. All that type of stuff will help you reduce your electricity consumption. And then based on how much electricity that is going to help you save, that is, you know, reflective in how much grant money you'll get from the federal government. Solar is a part of that. And they reduce your electricity consumption 100% of the time. So if you don't have solar already, then boom, you're approved. And you will get $1,000 per kilowatt for the first five kilowatts of your solar system. So it's a full $5,000 back from the federal government. And they also have an interest-free loan, which is a 10-year term uh, where you can finance the, the solar as well. On top of the 5000 So let's say, let's say your solar system costs $15,000 and you get $5,000 back from the federal government. So it will cost you $10,000. You can finance that full $10,000 interest-free for 10 years. Wow. That's that's totally incentive to get this one done. Yeah, absolutely. And the federal government's really getting behind it as well. They announced a 30% refundable tax credit for businesses as well. So all businesses can you know get a, a huge refundable tax credit for any renewable energy project that they get as well. So the federal government's really stepping up to make sure that we're hitting our, our climate initiative. Well, I don't think they can make sure of it on their own, but that's good. That's a good step in the right direction. <laughs> At least they're helping yeah, us, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So another thing that you said that just blew my mind. So we were fretting over, we lose power all the time at our house. So we're like, okay, do we want to put power mm-hmm. and set it up as uh, as like a backup instead of, you know, loud gas guzzling generator that we sometimes have to resort to now? Sure. Or do we set it up so that we're feeding into the grid and getting credits and, and our total electrical bill goes down and, and the province's total use of anything but solar goes down, you know, by a tiny little bit, but it's our, we're doing our bit. And you said, would you ever be getting an electrical car? I thought, well, how does that come into it? So tell me this, this one was, was so helpful to us. Yeah. uh, You know, the electric vehicle industry is, I think, tied in with the solar industry. Um, To get off grid, you would need battery backup. So, you know, a lot of people will recognize the name Tesla. So, so there's a Tesla car and then there's a Tesla power wall. Now, the power wall is just a home battery, right, for your solar system to store your energy and kick in in the case of a grid failure. Or at night, if you're going all solar, it's where you draw it from. That's right. So When there's no sun. That's right. So there's, there's kind of two modes for the battery backup. So it can deploy your energy at night, so you pull less back from the grid. Or you could keep it in battery backup mode where it only kicks in in the case of a grid failure. And then you can, you know, run your essentials while the while the grid is down. That is great functionality for solar and we want to get there. The problem is home batteries are rather expensive and the Canadian electrical code doesn't allow for a lot of great spots to install them. And people who are getting electric vehicles are thinking about getting solar and people who are thinking about getting solar are thinking about getting electric vehicles. It's a very common conversation. And where the industry is starting to go, and the only electric vehicle that I know that does this so far right now that is allowed through the manufacturer is the Ford Lightning. It's the, it's the new electric truck. And they'll allow your vehicle to kind of act as that home battery. So when you plug your electric vehicle into the garage and the grid fails, you could then draw power from your electric vehicle or truck to keep your fridge cold. Cool. Right. So that's where the industry is going to go. We're not quite there yet. Hopefully, you know, we get there in, in a timely fashion. All it would take would be to upgrade your inverters from the system that we were looking at a couple of weeks ago or last week. You would need to upgrade your inverters from there for, you know, let's call it 2,500 bucks as opposed to spending $15,000 on a battery that's only going to last you seven years. 
and you get an electric vehicle out of the thing as well. So that's where the industry is going, and uh, it's, it's a really exciting time. Now, speaking of exciting, we did a road trip out west and back this summer, and I felt like I saw so much more wind as well as solar power mm-hmm. being put up all over the place than I've noticed in Thunder Bay of late. Like, is, is this really booming, and, and we're just not yet caught up in Thunder Bay? Uh, it's possible, you know. It's it's been a while since I myself has been up to, have been up to Thunder Bay. Um, you know, I live in Winnipeg here, and there's there's only one house that I know of that has solar panels that I drive around at kind of my end of town. It's not something I see very often, but I think it's really something that you're going to start seeing soon. Most of the solar in Canada that I've been doing, it has been some residential. You'll see a lot in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Uh, really jumped on the solar bandwagon a few years ago. They burn a lot of coal in Saskatchewan and they have high electricity. In Manitoba, we have hydroelectricity and relatively low costs. But as electricity rises, uh, the cost of electricity rises and Manitoba Hydro keeps promising to increase our rates. Well, people are still starting to look at it now and the rebates here. And in Ontario, you know, you guys are paying way more for your electricity than than we are here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Where where the solar has really gone in the last little while, Saskatchewan one in Manitoba, it's been a lot of farms and a lot of businesses hmm. that have been making the switch to solar, and now we're seeing it in residential. So I don't think Thunder Bay is behind the curve. Maybe Canada in general. Right. If you go down to Palm Springs, California, where my parents spend their winters, and I walk outside, 14 out of 15 houses have solar panels on. So it's not so much Thunder Bay. I think it's Canada in general. We're just a little bit behind, but we're really starting to catch up now. Reduce carbon, all that good stuff. And uh, it's doing nothing but growing. So we're all playing catch up. It's not just Thunder Bay. And this year is going to be a big year for solar. Kevin Bowes is a solar energy consultant with PowerTech Solar, which is based in Winnipeg, but services Thunder Bay. And I'll put a link to get a quote from him on the website at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes. So there you go. We're, we're well on our journey to figure out how we're going to install solar at our house. And I'm just so excited to have that opportunity knocking at our door. I also did follow the website he sent me a link to, which I'll also put on www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes, so that we could start the ball rolling on getting access to those grants and rebates and financing. But that wasn't the only thing I had on our to-do list. The other thing was heat pumps. The more I dig in to decarbonizing our economy and greater efficiency of our use of energy, the more heat pumps come up, like a given. But I I couldn't quite wrap my head around them. Like, what are they exactly? I would see diagrams that that just didn't correlate with what my house looks like, and explanations that didn't sufficiently explain what they do and, and why or for whom they might be a good idea. So when I found a website called www.cutyourhomecarbon.com that offered a free consult, specifically mentioning that they can help you understand heat pumps and whether they're a good fit for your needs, I'm like all over it like a dirty shirt. And Richard Laszlo got right back to me. He was so great at answering my still burning questions, I finally got it. And, of course... Then I had to ask him to come on the podcast as well, and he very graciously agreed to do so. I'll put links to the CutYourHomeCarbon.com website on my website. I explored it more after booking this conversation with Richard and found it super helpful. But Richard's expertise goes well beyond heat pumps. He's a leader and an advisor for an alphabet soup of organizations in the field of energy technologies and policies. He's also the proud author of Pollution Probe's Primer on Energy Systems in Canada. So I'm sure we could have spoken about many things, but we tried to keep focused on heat pumps. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Heather. All right. So let's get to all the things that blew my mind when we were chatting earlier. And the first revelation was that I already own a couple of heat pumps in my home. So tell me more. What are the heat pumps everyone already has? Right. So so everybody, well, everybody with a refrigerator already has a heat pump. And we think about a refrigerator as cooling our food. And of course, that's what it does. But what the refrigerator is actually doing is it's taking the heat that's inside the fridge and it's pumping it out the back of the fridge. And that's why it's hot at the back of the fridge. 
So there's a heat pump in your fridge. And that's what you hear when, you know, if the fridge is open for a little while, you can hear the compressor kick on, that noise kind of cycling. That's the, the sound of the heat pump, the compression cycle that it's going. And really what it's doing is it's circulating a fluid and it's taking advantage of some thermodynamic principles to move heat from one place to another. Most people also have an air conditioner, not everybody, but most people have an air conditioner. And an air conditioner works on the exact same principle. It's cooling our house down, but really what it's doing is it's taking the heat inside the house and it's pumping it outside. So heat pumps have been around for a long time and they're increasingly cost-effective. And they're definitely a proven technology, they're not new. Oh, they're definitely a proven commercial, fully commercial technology. And actually, you know, the first time I remember seeing heat pumps for space heating and, and space cooling was uh, in the Middle East, visiting there as a, a teenager. They're ubiquitous there. They're everywhere. Heat pumps are, are commonplace in much of Europe, the Mediterranean, uh, lots of Asia. It's really the norm internationally and um, just the exception here in Ontario. So why are they uh, more efficient than just a furnace to heat and an air conditioner to cool? So the heat pump uh, doesn't actually create its own heat. And so um, a furnace, the best furnaces out there uh, have an efficiency of roughly, you know, 95%. You know, you can get ones that go up as high as kind of 98%, like a condensing furnace. But, but you know, typically you see furnaces that operate in the real world, in homes, at kind of an 85%, 90% efficiency level. Um, and so, you know, there's a limit there, you know, um, the law of, of, of conservation of energy uh, states that, you know, you, you can't kind of create energy out of thin air. And when you convert from one form of energy to another, um, you know, you're going to have losses. And so uh, 100% is kind of the max theoretical, but typically we see kind of 90%. So, you know, same thing with, um, uh, with, with a gas furnace, you, you get this limitation. Um, with a heat pump, it's kind of it, it it exploits kind of a loophole <laughs> where um, because it's not generating its own heat, it's just moving heat from one place to another. It can do this very efficiently, um, and so if a heat pump is kind of operating in its its kind of ideal conditions, it can achieve efficiencies of uh of 250 percent 300 percent and and even higher in some cases um and and again it, it the reason you can get a, an efficiency above 100 percent is because the heat pump isn't generating its own heat it's concentrating thermal energy and it's moving it from one place to another so what that means practically is if you if you know, the, the, the heat pump consumes one kilowatt hour of electricity, it can, it can actually result in three, two and a half or three kilowatt hours of, of thermal energy, of heat. And so they are incredibly efficient um, and, uh, and, and very effective at, at providing heating and, and cooling. So you mentioned the Middle East or, or where it's really hot. Um, how effective is it where it's cold? Right. Yeah. Good question. And and just to back up for a second, I think one of one of the uh, amazing things about heat pumps is that they can do both heating and cooling. And so um, you know they're they're really like an air conditioner in the summer. The magic of a heat pump is that when it gets colder outside they have a reversing valve and they basically operate in reverse. So instead of taking the heat in your house and pumping it outside in the, in the fall or, you know, the winter, they take the heat outside and they pump it in your house. So um, in terms of, you know, where they operate best, uh, a typical heat pump will operate you know, really well, its optimal range is, is anywhere from about zero degrees to, you know, 10, 15 degrees Celsius. And that's when they're most efficient. They can continue providing heat at lower temperatures, 
but their efficiency curve kind of drops off. So you go from that kind of 250% efficiency, you, you know, you start, it starts declining the colder it is outside. Now there's um, what they call a, a cold climate heat pump, which is uh, a bigger unit. It's got a bigger compressor. It consumes more electricity. It can operate efficiently down to even lower temperatures. So negative 10, negative 15 degrees Celsius. So basically, if I add a heat pump to my heating and cooling systems or replace my cooling with a heat pump, because that sounds perfectly sufficient up here, but have it complement my heating system, my heating system's less needed, especially in the shoulder seasons. But it also is less needed when it's cold because we're starting at a higher base temperature, right? I'm not trying to heat the whole house from zero to 20. I might only have to top up from 15 to 20 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, most, most people have, you know, most homes in Ontario, especially will have your typical gas furnace or a gas boiler, if you've got hot water rads uh, or radiant floor heating, but you know, you'll have a gas based space heating system. Um, and then they'll have an air conditioner for those people who want to, you know, get off gas or electrify their home, you can put in a cold climate heat pump, you can put in uh, what they call as an air handler, and there'll be some backup electric resistive heating in the air handler. And that works, you know, many people have that and it's becoming increasingly popular. But it's just not realistic for a lot of people for various reasons, there could be uh, space limitations, there could be issues with their ductwork and you know of course budget is is a concern so a, a good kind of compromise option is what they call dual heating or, or hybrid heating and that is you take out your air conditioner and you replace that air conditioner with a heat pump so you still have your gas furnace and your gas furnace provides heating when it's really really cold you know the depths of february at the coldest temperatures, just like you would today. But when you think about your, you know, your gas furnace is really like a Ferrari, a very powerful machine that can produce an incredible amount of heat in a very, very short amount of time because you have that direct gas combustion. When it's 10 degrees outside and you just need to raise the temperature a little bit in your home, it's kind of silly to use your gas furnace. It'll constantly be cycling on and off as it hovers around, you know, your whatever your set temperature is, 18 degrees or what have you. So this compromise option of having a heat pump working with a gas furnace works great because your heat pump will provide cooling in the summer. And then in the shoulder seasons, a day like today, it's it's three degrees in, uh, in West End of Toronto. So a heat pump can provide heat on a day like today very, very efficiently. If it's milder winter temperatures, then, you know, a heat pump can, can handle that. It's only when it's very, very cold, you need the gas furnace to kind of kick on. So they work together very well. And what that does is it uh, produces heat very efficiently. And it can also extend the life of your furnace because your furnace won't be cycling on and off as frequently. And so it's uh, it's a really good solution, and you end up with a, a, a drastic reduction in your home carbon emissions. So it's it's a really good option for very little incremental cost. There is a cost above replacing an air conditioner, but it's fairly modest, and uh, you can you know cut your your carbon emissions by 70, 80 percent putting in a heat pump to replace your air conditioner. The other key thing that you talked about that helped me understand imagining this in different spaces I live and work in is uh, how it works with the system you have in place. So we have ductwork at our house might be different from if we had radiant flooring. So tell me a bit more about that. Sure. So if you have ductwork, a heat pump can integrate with that very easily. It's connected through your, your furnace and it essentially transmits this, this fluid that's either cold in the summer to cool your home or hot in the in the winter to, to, to heat your home. So it works with ductwork very well. If you have hot water rads or radiant floor heating, you've got kind of two options. And I have hot water rads in my house. Uh, I love the heat that the rads give off. So what we did is we installed ductless 
uh, heat pumps or ductless mini splits. And essentially that is a, a heat pump that is separate from your hydronic system. So you have um, standalone heat pumps outside. They can either be mounted on the ground. Typically they're mounted on the walls of, on the outside of, of your home. And then they're connected to individual rooms via this kind of black tubing. And then inside you have these indoor units or heads, they're called. And they're fantastic. We have three young children and each of the kids have a one of these indoor units in their room. And what's great about it is that each of these units comes with its own remote and you can set the temperature in each of those rooms to whatever preference whoever's living those in those rooms have. So, you know, um, my son likes it cooler than one of my daughters, right? So, so they have the ability to kind of adjust that temperature. There's no fighting over, you know, what temperature the house is. It's cold in one room. It's hot in the other room. You can adjust each room individually. So it's a really good solution for us. Um, there is another option, which is getting an air to water heat pump. And so you can use a heat pump to heat up the water in your hydronic system. Like if you have hot water rads or radiant floor heating, so you can do that. The only issue with that is then you have a situation where you're, that doesn't provide a cooling solution. So I prefer ductless, ductless heat pumps um, in combination with radiators. It, it's not inexpensive because you essentially have kind of two systems. You have you know, your, your, your hot water system with your rads, and then you've got this other system that provides uh, space heating and, and cooling. It, it tends to be a more expensive just because you have all this equipment but it's a it's a very good system in terms of uh, offering flexibility, offering thermal comfort. You do realize some savings gradually over time. That's correct. Depending depending on how you use it, that's correct. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so if you're maximizing it, so now your standards have changed. You might not see as much of a savings as if you used to live a lot with uh, with a lot more temperature variability. And uh... yeah, that's right. And and it also depends on how you use the heat pumps like you know if for example if you're if you're on uh, time of use rates with your electricity provider you know you need to watch out for that because if you're using the heat pumps especially if it gets colder and you're using the heat pumps and they're not as efficient and you know you, you're getting hit with peak rate then you know that that can have an impact on your bills there's no question so it just takes some some getting used to i love that you're not overselling this you're being realistic but you still are seeing an uptick in interest for sure. Absolutely. Uh, it's a tremendous interest. I think a lot of people want to do what they can to cut their carbon. I think other people are, you know, I, you know, I think we've, we've seen some kind of heat waves and things in the last, last few summers. And um, I think people who store historically didn't have air conditioning, I think now are kind of realizing that it's, it's not really a luxury anymore. Um, and so, um, some cooling is, is often necessary. And I think as well, I'm seeing a lot more cases where the multi-generational family dynamic is coming back in many ways, which I think is a good thing for society. Now we're seeing either adult children or, or parents that are now living in, in homes and maybe living in those additions and thermal comfort is an issue. And so I think heat pumps provide improvements in that, in that comfort where if you have kind of duct work throughout the house, it's never going to be perfect. You're never going to get perfect airflow in every room in the house. And so ductless heat pumps really provide a, a good solution to improve the thermal comfort in, in homes. So tell me what happens next. If I'm sold, I want to figure out how to do this in my home. It didn't pop up as a simple like call here and we'll solve it for you. What kind of expertise are we looking for? Who, who would be doing the work for us and helping us fit the options uh, to what we want, what we decide is a fit for us? Sure. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a, that's a really good question. And I think you really need a good heating and ventilation air conditioning contractor. We're very fortunate in Ontario. There's a, a, there's a lot of choice in terms of your HVAC contractor. Um, where we are a bit challenged is that not all HVAC contractors are familiar with heat pumps. And anecdotally, we've heard that they may or may not be fans of heat pumps. 
you know, a lot of HVAC contractors, not all, but, but some will try to convince you to not put in a, a heat pump and say, you know, why do you want to do that? It's expensive, doesn't work properly, all this. And that's not true. We know they work very well and they can be a really good cost-effective solution for homeowners, but you really need to choose wisely when it comes to an HVAC contractor. And this is part of the reason that uh, my partner and I started this business was to help homeowners understand their options, understand the pros and cons of heat pumps and other low carbon equipment for their home. And then we pair them with an HVAC contractor that is familiar with heat pumps that works in their area. If you have an HVAC contractor that you trust, go with them. If you don't or want some options, better understand what your options are, feel free to check out our website, cutyourhomecarbon.com, or you can send me an email at richard at cutyourhomecarbon.com, and I'd be happy to speak with you. We do a free virtual consultation, just like we did, Heather, and uh, walk you through your options, answer any questions you have. You know, we really pride ourselves on not being salesy. That's not what we're here to do. We're, we're here to help homeowners on their low carbon journey and their retrofit journey. And then if, uh, if you're interested, we pair you up with a, an HVAC contractor in your area. The other thing going on right now to make it a good time to start that journey of what are my options and what do I want to do and when, applying to get an assessment of, of what your current efficiency of your home is and then using that to access both some grant money or rebates, as well as some zero interest financing. How does it apply to heat pumps? There are some incentives available right now. There's a federal Greener Homes Grant program. And there's also in parallel a conservation program that Enbridge runs. To be eligible for those programs, you need to hire an energy advisor they come and they do an energy audit in their home. Some people might remember there was kind of a similar program back in, what was it, 2008-ish. They come and they, they ask you to close all your windows and doors, and then they do what's called a blower door test. So they put this kind of contraption on your front door that essentially kind of uh, vacuum seals your home, um, and it can test how, how leaky your home is in terms of heat loss. And uh, so they give you a number, an energy star, kind of a rating for your home. And then they, they should go through your home and they kind of advise you if you want to um, improve your windows, if you want to improve your doors, if you want to do insulation, if you want to put in heat pumps, then there could be incentives that uh, you'd be eligible for. So I think they max out at about $5,000. And if you do multiple measures, then the cost of that audit is uh, reimbursed. So that's part of the the funding goes towards uh, the cost of the audit. Now, I should say not all heat pumps are eligible for funding. Uh, So it really depends on what you're putting in and, and those details do matter. And I should say on this point, incentives are great, but um, sometimes people chase the incentives and it might not be the right equipment for their home. So I, I would say that, you know, the incentives are great if you're looking to um, put in a piece of equipment that is on the eligible equipment list, then the incentives are, are fantastic. But I wouldn't get trapped in this kind of incentive chasing. Sometimes it just makes sense to just go it alone. And, and it also lets you do it much quicker. The incentive process can take several months. Having gone through it myself, I can tell you by the time you get paid, it, it can be you know, half a year or more after you initially sign up for the audit. Um, the other thing that you can get through the Greener Homes Grant is up to $40,000 in zero interest loans. And that's exciting, especially if you're going to do a bigger project like solar, like, uh, you know, heat pumps, insulation, and, you know, it definitely comes with a higher price tag to do that. So that is zero interest loan can really help a lot of homeowners looking to do those big projects. So you mentioned off the hop that Ontario is kind of starting to gear up and catch up with other places that use heat pumps a lot more. How are you seeing that? And is there an advantage to trying to get a little bit ahead of a race here? So Ontario has been, it is a laggard on heat pumps. Market penetration of heat pumps, uh, last I saw was the single digits. 
percentages where, you know, when you go even to a place like, you know, Nova Scotia or Manitoba, British Columbia, Quebec, you see a lot more heat pumps. There's a few reasons for that. Typically, we've seen jurisdictions that have lower electricity prices. Heat pumps are more popular. It's been cheaper to do space heating with gas here. Um, but again, that dynamic has changed. Gas prices have been moving up and the carbon price and now these incentives on av- available, you know, it's all kind of, again, it's changing the, the business case for homeowners. And now I think they're, it's definitely gaining traction now. I see a lot more interest in heat pumps. There's more contractors that are working in the space. There's more choice in terms of products, uh, equipment in the market. And, you know, there's nothing like seeing your neighbor putting in a heat pump to get, uh, you know, everyone else interested in doing that. So, and and I think there's no doubt we'll catch up with the other provinces and uh, hopefully surpass them in the years ahead. My husband didn't want me to let you go without asking you, heat pumps and geothermal, it feels like there's a lot of parallels, but, you know, what are the differences? How are they related and are they? Yeah, they're absolutely related. And so a heat pump, is a way to move heat from one place to another through the use of a refrigerant, a fluid that circulates in the system. We've been talking today about air source heat pumps. Its source of thermal energy is from the outside air or from the inside air. If it's if, if you're cooling the house, again, remember it's taking the heat from inside the house and it's pumping it outside. If you're heating the home, it's taking the heat from outside and pumping it in. A geothermal heat pump or geo exchange or a ground source heat pumps, those all kind of mean the same thing. Those use the heat underground to heat up this fluid and then circulate it in through the house. The source of the heat is from the ground. That's why, you know, ground source heat pump versus air source heat pump. And similarly, when you're cooling the home, it takes the heat inside your home and it dumps it underground. So it's the exact same thing. It's just a ground source heat pump is using the ground as a heat source and heat sink. And uh, an air source heat pump uses the air as its uh, heat source and heat sink. Um, And I um, just assume doing the ground one requires a bit more infrastructure because you got to dig. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a a ground source heat pump, um, you know, definitely has its advantages because the ground, you know, underground is, is very stable temperature you can achieve incredible efficiencies with a ground source heat pump year round. Even in the depths of winter, your ground source heat pump, properly designed and sized, can uh, provide adequate heating so you don't need any kind of backup heating source. The downside is the cost can be quite high. As well, you need a good piece of land to, uh, to build. Now, you know, you know, you can either do a, what they call horizontal well. You lay pipe kind of horizontally, say in a backyard, for example, the alternative is you do a vertical well and that goes down. It's possible. Anything is possible. Technically feasible, you can do a vertical well, but, you know, it starts getting expensive and, you know, you need to get the equipment on site and it's not that easy for a lot of homeowners, you know, especially in a, in a more dense urban environment where getting the equipment to somebody's backyard can be a challenge. But, you know, if, if you've got the land that's not an issue, then a, a ground source heat pump is definitely a, a good option to uh, to look into. And how about once you've put that capital investment in and you have your heat pump and it's all integrated, what are we talking about for costs for maintenance, repairs, replacement? How do these things hold up? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, an air source heat pump, um, like we've been talking about, it's comparable to uh, to an air conditioner. Typically, we talk about an operating life of 15 years or so. Geo exchange, I think, can last longer. Again, if properly designed and properly installed, a good geo exchange system, you know, you won't have to do anything for 20 plus, 30 years even. And then at that point, you know, sometimes you need to go in and, and kind of deal with, with it. Make sure that your HVAC contractor that you choose is qualified, is professional, that there's proper warranties in place. Check them out, ask for referrals, speak to other customers. You know, it's a big investment. And so you want to make sure that you're dealing with a top contractor where, you know, you're going to get a good system. Don't chase the lowest price, go with quality. And maintenance, like how much do you need to kind of plan to make sure you're using your system properly? Is it like my car? Do I need twice annual oil changes and tune-ups? So I recommend for anybody, regardless of what system they have, to get a twice yearly 
checkup on their HVAC system. The analogy with your car is a good one. Just like your car, this equipment has moving parts, filters need replacement. So I, I strongly recommend to get a, a twice annual checkup by a uh, contractor. Ideally, it's the one that installed the system so that they're familiar with the equipment. They'll know what's going on. I do it in my home just before cooling season starts. So, you know, sometime kind of May, June-ish. And then again, uh, when heating season starts, so kind of October-ish. And that will make sure that your system's in good operating condition as you switch to kind of heating and cooling and back again. And, you know, I, I think on top of that, for people who have heat pumps or furnaces, you know, make sure to replace your, your filters, keep airflow, you know, don't obstruct the, the device, make sure to uh, keep it clean and it should uh, last you a long time. Okay. Thanks so much for joining me today, Richard. Thank you so much, Heather. Always happy to chat heat pumps.
It's not all up to you But if you can do what you can do What you can do That would help to see us through That would help to see us through Hot off the press is not quite polished yet, but that is do what you can do for this week's edition of Something Different This Way Comes. And do what you can do when you own your property, when it's a, a house or a business that qualifies for rebates right now. That's great. But there's more than that that we can do. There's bottlenecks we can get through. There's improvements we can suggest. There's hats we can put on, not just as an owner, but as a customer, a client, as an employee, or a neighbor, or a citizen. One of the things I looked at, because our little hilltop up here, it's sunny, but it's also windy, and I thought, why not do wind? When we were driving around this summer down last year to see family down east, and and this past summer out west to visit memories and, and family there too, I kept getting struck by wind power that I see more there than I do around here, even though this is such a windy spot. And you hear so much about wind, about commitments that towns and neighborhoods and countries have made to generate as much wind as possible, and I'm not seeing it here. So I did a little digging, you know, put on my journalist hat to see why not. I even tried to track down people behind Dorian Wind Farm that went up a while ago when the microfit program was was roaring and I got a little bit of information but I also got discouraged because it feels to me that we could be doing more and we've put some bottlenecks in place that are overdue to be removed at least revisited and you know who agreed with me my son Ben so I invited him in to give me some of his perspective on what more we could do hi mom tell me about windmills what do you know about them what do you like about them Well, they are a nice renewable energy source. If you have the space for them, they've got a lot of bang for your buck. So, and there's a whole bunch of different styles are out there based on whatever you need. Pretty good. So if we could put one up here at home, do you know what you'd want to put up? Um, Vertical shaft, since they take up less space, although they don't provide as much energy. If, If we had one of the huge ones, like you'll see out in the, out in the country, we need to like give some give some power to our neighbors. We have that much. Right. It would generate more than we could use. Yeah. Which is also a problem right now in Ontario because when individuals generate more power than they need, they don't get paid for it. They're giving it away. There's a discouragement from generating more power than you personally need in your home. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense to me. Exactly. Where have you seen oh a vertical shaft windmill? I have seen a vertical shaft windmill on the college campus um, that we drive by occasionally. It's pretty cool. We drive pretty close to it. it. Yeah. So the other thing I found when I was looking is that there's all these restrictions in Ontario that don't apply in the other provinces or most of the rest of the world. Like offshore wind farms are a big deal that lots of countries are investing hugely in, but they're banned in Ontario currently. We're also banned from having windmills that are less than 300 meters from any shore and we have so many lakes and rivers and tributaries in Ontario that really limits where we can build um what was another one I noticed oh you can't build a windmill less than one and a half kilometers from a noise receptor and I'm like what's a noise receptor and it's anywhere where a human being could hear right anywhere we might stop and listen so a hiking trail Certainly a building, a residence, an office, a parking lot, even a highway. Yeah. How do you feel when I list off all these restrictions? It feels like somebody was given the ability to make rules and had not researched their topic enough. There have been some videos of bad things happening to windmills, like at high speeds during hurricanes, like... There's a video out there of a windmill spinning so fast that the blades tear right off during a hurricane over down in the U.S. And people sometimes use 
stuff like that as an excuse to not use them. But it feels like somebody didn't do enough research. For the guy that decided that um, offshore wouldn't be a good idea, I think he probably was thinking along the lines of the whole toaster in a bathtub thing. thing. Like, what does he think's going to happen? Like, when you drop your phone in there, does he think it's going to charge when there's an offshore? <laughs> how would you feel about getting behind some suggestions about how here in Thunder Bay we could turn spaces that we use for one thing into dual-purpose spaces that generate more natural energy? Yeah, I'd totally get behind that. It's a great cause. Why? It's something worth fighting for. If there's something you don't find is just, talk to people about it. And, you know, people need to hear your opinion. Hey, maybe your opinion might not even be right, but it's still worth fighting for. And listening to the other side. Exactly. If you don't tell them what you're thinking and don't listen to what they're thinking, you can't make things better. Yeah. Thank you, Ben, for adding your voice to this. You're welcome. So that's Ben, my son. We need solar, and we need wind, we need thermal, non-fossil fuel power, we need power, we need shelter, and we need food, goods and services, outside the global supply chain yes we need local we need local and we need wild we need local we need local and we need wild we got troubles mm-hmm. we got troubles We need you. We need you. We need you. Whatever you can do. We need you. Do what you can do. It's not all. That would help to see us through But if you can do what you can do What you can do That would help to see us through So that's the final thought I had to wrap us up today, is what more can we do? I know one of the things that bothered me as I was looking at these these initiatives, these incentives, are um, all these restrictions that just seem purely misguided to me. For instance, in Thunder Bay, our municipally owned power generation synergy will not allow you to, as you generate power, if you're lucky enough to be somebody who owns a property that faces the right direction, has the capital, put it in place, you cannot generate more power than you would otherwise have taken out of the grid. If you give the grid more power than you draw from the grid, you're giving it away for free. Why? Why not maximize what power is generated renewably in the city? There's no good reason. It's not a competition issue here. It's a save the world issue here. These things drive me bonkers. And similarly, the grants that the federal government is putting forward, they are great for homeowners. And they've also got some funding out there for business owners that own their own property. But not everybody owns where they do business. You're a landlord or you're a tenant. You can't take advantage of these. Being a landlord is not considered a business. It's owning a passive investment. So unless it's a big enough landlord that owns mucho properties, Uh, then you can qualify as a business and get your hands on some of this money. But most of Thunder Bay's rental properties are really very modest landlords. They don't qualify for this funding. They might choose to do it anyways. Like Richard was saying, if it's going to 
hedge you against the risk of upping costs when you're kind of limited in how much you can up your income as a landlord, it might be worth doing anyways. Then you can generate your own power and not worry about how much the cost of grid power is. Or you can mitigate the cost of, of heating and cooling your units because you put in a heat pump. It might still make sense for you, even though you don't qualify for the rebates. It's just the limited thinking of the rebates that drives me a little bonkers. Plus, on top of that, these rebates and this investment in renewable energy being financed by citizens at the ground level has been capped by the federal government. There's only so much they'll spend, and then they'll stop. They've allocated an unlimited amount of money to that particular aspect of how they're financing this transition in our economy. And that doesn't make sense to me. But the thing is, the more of us point out what we think should be different, the more we have open conversations as equals, talking to our employer, to our colleagues, to our teachers, to our school board, to our municipal government, to our provincial representatives, and raise the issue. The more we talk to two people who might talk to two people, it's hard to see how much of a difference it would make. But just ask Catherine Hayhoe of Saving Us, the the Canadian climate scientist who went from really worrying about the facts and how to get the facts out there to realizing it's the conversations we have that are going to have the greatest impact. It's not the facts. It's what people hear that has the biggest impact. So what we can do is probably more than is being spelled out to us. And I have great hope for how it's all going to add up as we raise our voices and join hands and do what we can do. Thank you for listening to the Do What You Can Do edition of Something Different This Way Comes. I'm Heather McLeod. This podcast is very personal. I speak for no one but myself. I write these songs and these words, record these conversations. And I'm so glad that you listen in. Please help spread the word. Every additional listener is so welcome. Next week is our grand finale for this season. Season three will happen in the spring. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different.